All right. Well, hey, welcome. So glad you are here. Couple things just wanted to let you know about. Um, Oregon summertimes uh, basically mean we all ditch our commitments, right? And so community groups tend to relax during the fall, the summer here. And so if you are new and you want to connect, or if you if your community group is taking a break and you just want you want to dive into like something a little bit more meaty for a study this summer, we're going to be offering uh, Colossians as a summer study this summer on Monday nights starting July. 11th for four weeks and so it's going to be taught by the teaching team plus the esteemed carl palmer so it's going to be really fun and uh just invite you to that secondly uh some of you have have seen the posters and gotten emails about this journey launch training and maybe you're confused about it I, what i want to say to you is just very simply it's this if, if you are somebody who influences others whether you're an elder here or you lead a community group or you just go on intentional walks with a neighbor to talk about jesus and uh life then uh, you are somebody who influences others. And we want to invite you to one of these three trainings, June, July, or August. It is a two-parter, and it is going to be awesome. Uh, Mary Kalesi and Cookie Wall are, and Gabby are all putting this on with me, and it's going to be just a great time to take a look at our spiritual life, what it looks like to become like Jesus. And we're going to even go over some basic things that you know, but maybe we have a hard time living, and we're just going to get uh, on the same page as people who are working together to help others become like Christ with us. So make it a priority. We hope to see you there. Choose one of the three and let Heather Zimney know which one you're going to. So with that, let's dive into Red Letters, our next, uh, our next bit of Red Letters, the series where we are looking at the Gospel of Luke and all of these teachings of Jesus where he is uh, showing us what it looks like to be his follower, to become like him. So if you have a Bible, turn it open to Luke chapter 16, verse 1. Luke 16, verse 1. Uh, this series, Red Letters, by the way, has some really cool art that our artist community created just uh, to, to give some visual representation to each one of these teachings of Jesus. So take a look at those later. Well, as you're turning your Bibles to Luke 16:1, I want... Uh, to remind us of 2005. Remember 2005, one of the greatest natural disasters in the United States history hit the Gulf Coast. And uh, Hurricane Katrina uh, claimed, some say, the lives of at least 1,200. Others think more like 1,800 people. It was an awful disaster. It caused $108 billion in damage, at least. I mean, that's a lot of zeros. And... Uh, Dozens of folks from this church went and you helped and you provided aid and built stuff. Raise your hand if like that was you back in 2005. Yeah, way to go. All right. That's not as many as I thought, but it was still way to go. That's awesome. And so we're super pumped uh, to send people there. But one of the things that happened was the aftermath of Hurricane Katrina revealed uh, that to a certain extent, the damage and the lives lost could have been significantly lessened. It could have been better. The controversy about this involved two things. It involved, first of all, that the levees that were there to kind of protect uh, the New Orleans area uh, were built by the Army engineers about 10 feet too short. Those are 10 important feet when there are thousands and millions of gallons of water crashing at you. And so uh, it turned out that the Army engineers had skimped, tried to save some money, they cut the costs, and uh, it ultimately cost uh the people a great deal. The other uh, controversy involved the fact that 
the emergency aid that was supposed to come into the city was delayed, and uh, the emergency services to bring aid and evacuate uh, flooding uh, took its lovely time, in other words. And people, uh, the disaster, the crisis of the, uh, the event was worse than it should have been. And so the reality in both of these cases is that a crisis that was coming could have been better, but it was made worse. In both cases, uh, uh, neither those in power to make decisions to strengthen levies or those in power to respond efficiently to victims acted wisely or decisively. The result was that the crisis caused far more damage uh, and ultimately cost their own reputations. In fact, I would say that in both cases, a simple attitude of wise self-preservation would have averted the disastrous effects of the crisis. Neither group would have needed to have altruistic motives. They could have just simply acted wisely for their own self-preservation, knowing that their reputations would be on the line and a crisis was coming. So these realities, while 11 years old, are a great example a modern example of something that Jesus teaches us in today's section of Luke's gospel. So let's take a look at Luke 16, verse 1. So Jesus told his disciples there was a rich man whose manager was accused of wasting his possessions. And so he called him in and asked him, what is this I hear about you? Give an account of your management because you cannot be manager any longer. So the manager said to himself, what shall I do now? My master is taking away my job. I'm not strong enough to dig, and I'm ashamed to beg. I know what I'll do, so that when I lose my job here, people will welcome me into their houses. So he called in each one of his master's debtors, and he asked the first, How much do you owe my master? 900 gallons of olive oil, he replied. The master told him, or the manager told him, Take your bill, sit down quickly, and make it 450. Then he asked the second, And how much do you owe? A thousand bushels of wheat, he replied. He told him, take your bill and make it 800. The master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. For the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than are the people of the light. I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves so that when it is gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. Whoever can be trusted with very little can be trusted with much, and whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. So if you have not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches? And if you have not been trustworthy with someone else's property, who will give you your uh, property of your own? No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. This is a weird parable, right? This is one of like, this doesn't make your greatest hits of Jesus album, does it? You don't have that one on constant replay because it's a weird one. Like, I don't know, that was Jesus's experimental album. All of the fans rejected it. And I was like, what is going on there? Uh, it's a strange parable. Uh, this teaching of Jesus has confounded interpreters for centuries. Uh, the 20th century exegete, Rudolf Bultmann, uh, said that its meaning is irretrievable. In other words, he just gave up. So I don't know. I, I don't get it. And I don't think you can get it either. That was what he said. So what do we make of it? What do we make of this? Is this Jesus commending dishonesty? 
Uh, it kind of looks that way. Is he saying we buy our way into heaven? I mean, what's that bit about using your wealth to make uh, friends for yourselves to be welcomed into eternal dwellings? Or, or is Jesus just praising the redistribution of wealth? I mean, we know he's a revolutionary. We, we know he's critical to the rich in Luke. So why else is the steward an example? Well, I have to tell you, I, I, I was really excited to preach this passage because... Um, I was actually really confused, too, um, I, on the best way to interpret it. I read about a dozen scholars um, this last week, uh, and not all of them agreed. Actually, a lot of them disagreed. But a few things became very clear. So let's, let's, let's figure this out. Let's put this together. Uh, the, let's first of all remember that the context of what Jesus is saying here in Luke chapter 16 is still Luke 15. Luke 15, 1 has Jesus surrounded by tax collectors and sinners, the disreputable folks that a holy one should not be sitting with and dining with. And Jesus is also still being criticized by the Pharisees and the Torah experts who don't like the company Jesus is keeping. And so Luke 15 involves Jesus telling stories, the stories of a lost sheep and a lost coin and a man with two lost sons. He tells the story of the extravagant grace of a wealthy landowning father who invites us into his joy and who absorbs the costs of what has been squandered. Now, Jesus turns to his disciples and says to them, I want to tell you another story, a story about another rascal who likewise has squandered all of his master's estate. And by the way, Luke 16 involves parables for both of the crowds around Jesus. See, Luke 16 involves this kind of dishonest, disreputable man who uh, will ultimately fall on grace, just like the tax collectors and sinners around Jesus. But it also he also tells a parable that speaks to the Pharisees and the Torah experts who love money, we are told, in the parable of Lazarus and the poor beggar. And so Luke 16 continues the conversation. And so, in this context... We're going to see Jesus urges us to do three things. Three things. The first is he urges us to clue into the coming crisis. He urges us to bet on the mercy of the master. And he urges us to rearrange our priorities. Let's take a look at the first thing that Jesus urges this morning. He urges us to clue in to the coming crisis. Clue into the crisis. The parable begins with a wealthy master, likely an estate owner, somebody who uh, owns land and rents it out to others. He's the kind of person who is paid in kind. He's paid by the agricultural produce from his own land that is being rented. And so he has a manager or a steward, someone who deals with the renters and keeps the accounts. In other words, he is a combination CFO and COO. He's a CFO, chief financial officer, and a chief operations officer mashed up into one. But he's dishonest. I mean, we don't know anything about CFOs being dishonest these days, but uh, right. But he's a dishonest guy. He's crooked, and he's cooking the books. He's squandered what is not his. He hasn't been faithful or trustworthy with what's been given to him. And so the master comes and says, what is this that I'm hearing? It's present tense. So in other words, he's getting reports all the time about his manager. The master has been hearing about the manager. The manager has a a poor reputation that is going out before him. And now he is standing before the master accused. And so the master says, you need to turn in the books. In other words, I want an inventory of all of the debts and uh, I want an itemized list of my accounts. So that way I can transfer your job to somebody else. And you're done here, by the way. You can pack your things. 
Right? So, so it's this pink slip day for the steward, the manager. He's got one remaining task, which is to put the books together. So this man has a crisis, doesn't he? He has a crisis. Maybe you've had this crisis. You've had a similar crisis where you realize your, your job is gone. What, how am I going to tell my family? What am I going to do now? This is, I guess, again, all happening before LinkedIn. This is all happening before Jobdengo. Is that even a thing? Do we still have that? Jobdengo? Anyway, dot com. All right. Uh, got nothing. All right. So this, this happened, right? Well before social networking could, could reclaim your reputation. This manager knows that his reputation is shot. This is significant. He lives in a first century agrarian society, which means that he cannot recast uh, his reputation. Right? His options are significantly limited by how he has lived out his role as a manager. And he is silent before the master. The master says, what is this? And he doesn't say anything, which is an indication of his guilt. This echoes something Paul will say later in Romans 1, that we are all without excuse for what has been revealed about God and how we have lived in light of it. And so his silence indicates his guilt. And so the master pauses, or I'm sorry, the manager pauses. He thinks to himself, what am I going to do? He realizes that his job is being taken away. He sees the crisis coming. He knows that physical labor would be above his strength. He knows that begging would be below his dignity. And then he says, I know what I'll do. I know what I'll do when I lose my job so that I'll be welcomed instead of rejected. Of course, he'd be rejected because he's known as somebody who mismanages estates. What I want to show you here is that his strategy involved and took into account his coming crisis. He clued in to the crisis. And later the master praises him for acting shrewdly. And that word shrewdly literally means prudence, wisdom, foresight. And so while there's some confusion to the exact interpretation of what's all going on in this parable, everyone agrees that Jesus highlights the wisdom and the prudence of this manager. He acts decisively and he acts wisely. Maybe it's for self-preservation or maybe it's for noble purposes. But it's decisive and it's wise in light of the coming crisis. And that's what counts. So Jesus later says, for the people of this world or the, the people of the world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than are the people of the light or the children of the light, literally. So, the first thing this parable urges us to do is to clue in to the coming crisis. But look at who's there in context. Look at verse 14. Who is listening in? The Pharisees who loved money heard all this and were sneering at Jesus. And so, the children of light, let me geek out on you for a second. The phrase, children of light, is a very important phrase in first century Judaism. It's a phrase that signifies Israel, the, the, the community that was intended to be a light to the nations. They were to be God's property managers. And in the context of Luke, it is always Israel who is constantly missing the reality of their crisis. And so in the crisis of their, of their day, they are trying to tighten up on the law and exert greater effort to bring about their salvation. See, in Luke's gospel, at long last, Israel's God has come into their midst and his kingdom has come in and through the ministry of Jesus. And all that Jesus is saying in Luke's gospel and the other gospels is that Israel's God is coming now as judge and king in person. 
And Jesus stands in judgment on Israel's corrupt worship at temple and their self-idolatry and their way of looking at Torah without looking to the one whom Torah points. And he comes to bring salvation, but they're missing it. They're missing it. They're missing the kingdom because they refuse to accept the nature of the kingdom. The nature of the kingdom, of course, comes in humility and it's in and it's full of inclusivity for all those deemed unworthy and unclean, the ones Jesus is dining with. And so in this context, the parable makes all kinds of sense. Israel doesn't grasp its crisis. It must give an accounting and it will be dismissed in its role as steward of the master's estate. But Israel fails to act shrewdly or decisively with wisdom in light of the crisis. Now, that is the first century Jewish horizon, but what does this have to say to our own modern-day horizon? What is up before us? Honestly, the principle is profoundly simple here. We all need to give an accounting, every one of us. We all have to give an accounting for the mismanagement of what the master has given us. See, like the manager, we have no excuses. There's only silence before the judgment. We will all be fired from this life, friends. Right? But will we have acted wisely and decisively in a way in which we will be welcomed once we have been dismissed in death? Will we have a home that lasts? See, the crisis of the kingdom, friends, is still one we must face because the offer of grace, the offer of life through the kingdom, it's impending judgment on all that is unjust, it's impending judgment on all that is wicked and bent, is still impending while we wait for Jesus to return and set all things right. So here's the question. Are you clued in on the crisis? Are you clued in on the coming crisis? Where are the places where you are living as if there will be no accounting? Where are the places where you are living today as if a coming day of judgment will somehow bypass you? See, even secular people know deep down that there must be justice in the world. They know this, or else we wouldn't have spent so many billions of dollars on litigation and legal issues, even if it's based on greed and self, uh, self-serving motivations. There is this, that in every human heart we crave ultimate justice. And what Jesus is saying here is that there is a day when we will face it, when we will face justice, because the story of humanity is a story of constant mismanagement of our lives and our resources, and the master knows it, and he calls us to account. There is a crisis. It is coming, but are we prepared for it? Have you clued in on the crisis, and do you have a strategy for facing it? Do you have a strategy for facing it? And here's the second thing that Jesus urges us. So that's heavy enough. Now, let's look at what Jesus says. He urges us to bet on his mercy. He urges us to bet on the mercy of the master. See, the way Jesus tells his parable is very brilliant. He's he's a great storyteller. He lets the drama build. The manager says in verse 4, I know what I'll do so that when I lose my job, people will welcome me into their homes. And we don't know what he's going to do, but we see that he has a strategy. And so the drama builds. And then we see him do something so completely uh, backwards to what we think any master would ever commend. Something that seems utterly dishonest. And it says in verse 5 that he calls in the debtors 
And then we see the first of two examples. He says to the debtor, how much do you owe? Right? This is not, by the way, I haven't been keeping accounts and I have no idea how much you owe. So did you tell me how much you owe? This is a, let's agree together. How much is it that you owe? Yep, that's right. Okay. Right? That's, that's the kind of moment that it is. And so he says, how much do you owe? He's confirming with the client what the accounts ought to be. And the, the manager then reduces the bill by 50%. He takes 100 measures of oil or 900 gallons of oil and he says, quickly write 50 measures or 450 gallons. In other words, this debtor just made back three years worth of salary with the stroke of a pen. Like, woohoo, right? This is pretty exciting. Now, it's important to realize that he has them write quickly because if the debtors thought for one second that the master didn't know about this or was unaware of this debt reduction program, they wouldn't have participated because, again, in this society, the relationship between landowner and renter is one of reciprocal relationship, of close bonding and intimacy. And so they would have a close relationship with the master and they wouldn't have ever knowingly participated in deception because then they would be guilty and would jeopardize their own right to the land and they would be in the same predicament as the manager. And so they each gladly received this debt reduction. Right? And it's, it's, it comes out of nowhere. It's shocking and unexpected and totally generous. I mean, how would you feel if Visa called you this week and said, we would like to reduce your bill by 50%? Right? What would happen if your bank called and said, you know what you have left on your house? We'd like to cut that in half. Ooh, like pretty good. I don't care if you owe a lot or a little. Like that is pretty exciting stuff. Then the, dis- the discount program continues. And by the way, you would all write very quickly, wouldn't you? Yeah, uh, okay, right. What, what was your name again? I'm going to take that one down. Has this phone call been recorded? <laughs> like... yeah, okay. So, then they each gladly receive this debt reduction. And then the debt, the discount program continues, and, 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 and the manager moves on to the next debtor. And he says, hey, reduce your bill from 100 to 80 measures of wheat, or 1,000 bushels of wheat to 800 bushels of wheat. This is an entire year's worth of earnings. It's a 20% reduction of the bill. I don't know if you've ever had an unexpected debt reduction But it's pretty remarkable, right? It creates a whole new economic reality. It changes the game plan. And and for these guys, it it creates a whole new economic reality and it creates a new social reality for the dishonest manager because what he knows is that he will get credit in the eyes of those uh, whose debts he's diminishing. He'll get credit for administrating this discount. It'll ingratiate himself to his community, which is particularly important since he's already on the outs with them. So there are different opinions as to exactly what's happening here in this story. There are questions as to whether or not the manager is just doing more mismanagement. He's cheating the master out of even more. Uh, some think that maybe this is a case of canceled interest rates, as if uh, he's just going through and he's, he's, def- he's killing off the interest. But it, would, it was completely illegal in that day to charge interest to a fellow Israelite. It was totally wrong. And so, and there's no indication within the parable that the master is seen in any way uh, negative. The, the others think that maybe what the manager's doing is that he's actually, he's cutting out his own commission. He's going to each person and he's saying, you know, because you're borrowing this from my master, I get a cut. Uh, but uh, 100% is a large commission. So 
We think that maybe that doesn't quite make sense, right? It could make sense in that he was cutting out his short-term gain to make longer-term gain. But here's what I think is going on. Um, Here's what's interesting about the manager's actions. I read a book this week by a guy named Kenneth Bailey that looks at the parable through literary and cultural lenses, asking the question, what would Middle Eastern peasants have noticed in this story? And here's what we tend to miss. And almost everyone would have noticed this. They would have noticed that the manager should have been jailed. The manager wasn't jailed. He wasn't scolded. He wasn't demanded to make restitution. And this tells us everything about the character of the master. I mean, how would you treat somebody who stole from you? If you knew somebody was squandering your estate, I know how I feel when somebody eats only half a banana in my house, right? And you're like, really? You asked for a banana and you're throwing out 90% of it? Because it has a brown mark? Maybe other parents feel that way? Okay. So, it's okay. I I know I need to work as a dad. But still, in my generosity. But here's the reality. We don't like it when we're cheated. Right? And we demand repayment and restitution and or punishment at times. But the master in the parable is a person of shocking generosity and incomparable mercy. See, the manager builds his strategy on how to face his crisis by gambling completely on the mercy of his master. So the manager says to himself, I know what kind of mercy I've seen in the master. I bet that I'm going to bet on the master's mercy again, that I'll secure my future on the master's mercy, on his generosity. And so he goes to the debtors and he offers them a deal that they would have thought surely came from the generous character of the master. And the manager then comes off looking like he's used his role to reduce their debt. In other words, the manager gets the credit afforded by the master's mercy. The master just accepts The debt reduction. The master just takes it in stride. And the subsequent praise that it would foster for him among his debtors. Then the master comes in and he, and instead of saying, you dirty cheat, instead of saying, you, you cheat, I went easy on you and this is how you repay me. What does the master say? It says he praised the dishonest manager. He praised the dishonest manager. So what's going on here? See, we have Jesus, and he's telling this this story. He's making this rascal, this mess of an estate manager, into a folk hero who, who manages his crisis by staking his entire future on the mercy and the generosity of his master. I read this this week. One scholar says this. He says, Because he is a good and gracious Lord who in a critical situation, instead of appealing to law, order, morality, or fair business practice, proves to be generous in an unprecedented manner. The master is pleased to see the agent set everything on one card, the master's goodness. And there's this one word that I think helps this whole thing become clear. There's one word here that that I think lends to this way of looking at the parable. It is the word used for praise. In the NIV, it's commend. But the word used to praise this manager. It's only used one time in Luke. And elsewhere, it is used as a word that signifies God's approval of us. It is not usually the word used to praise God. It is the word that God uses to 
the righteous God showing his acceptance and his approval in the final judgment. That is how this word works. And so in the gospel, the only way to receive God's final approval and ultimate acceptance is to bet on his mercy. The only strategy, friends, according to the gospel, is to give up our striving, to give up our earning, to give up our tightened efforts, and to lean instead totally on the generous mercy of the master. This is how the Bible says we face the crisis. The crisis is coming. Do you have a strategy? Do you have the right strategy? And the Bible says, and Jesus says in this parable, the only strategy is to bet on his mercy. That there is no getting the books of our lives straightened out apart from falling on his mercy. And like in this story, I love this, God delights in the manager betting on the mercy. Notice, too, that the master absorbs the cost. The master totally absorbs the cost in this parable. He absorbs the cost of the mismanagement, and he absorbs the cost of the debt reduction. See, there's only one person in the parable who pays a price. There's only one person in the parable who pays the cost of someone else's guilt. And it's the master. And the result of this isn't punishment. It isn't retribution. Do you know what the result of that absorption of the price is? It's praise. It's commendation. Friends, is this your picture of God today? Is this who you know the Savior to be? Do you know his mercy like this? Where you realize that that his preference is forgiveness rather than retribution? That his heart is mercy every time? That his offer is to pay the price for you? The price of sin and mismanagement and the squandering of a life. And he says, I will absorb the justice for it. This is his mercy. And he loves to give it. He's delighted to give it. Is this your picture of God that you came in with today? Don't leave today without rethinking God from this story forward. It's his mercy that we're to bet on. Do you see the cost he's so gladly borne for you? And the cross? See, what are you leaning on today? Where are the places you're leaning, you're resting your future, you're resting your identity, you're resting your security? Are you gambling on your own resourcefulness? Are you gambling on your own goodness, your own moral savvy, your own ability to produce income or something else to give you security? Maybe you aren't clued into the crisis, or maybe you are, and your attempt is to just try to keep up a life that gets you favor. But learn from this story today, the story that Jesus tells us, that the only crisis-averting, praise-resulting action, the only shrewd, the only prudent, wise thing to do is to bet on his mercy, to fully rest on it, to fully rest on it so much that you could say, my identity is staked on it, my security and my rest and my peace are staked on it. And here's how you know you're banking on mercy, by the way. You know you're banking on mercy when you don't have to prove yourself anymore. You know you're banking on mercy when you don't rebuff at criticism. You know you're banking at mercy when you don't fear what might get said about you. You know you're banking on mercy when you resemble his mercy to others when they become debtors in your life. So finally, friends, Jesus shows us that once we have placed our confidence in his mercy, 
on what he's done to absorb the cost of our own mismanagement, to fully lean on his mercy on the cross, we see how it changes everything. It reestablishes our lives and reprioritizes our reprioritizes our lives. And this is the third thing, the final thing I want to show you this morning. This this is a story where Jesus urges us to rearrange our priorities. He finishes this section with this poetic blast of one-liners where he says, I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves so that when it is gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. And whoever can be trusted with little can also be trusted with much. And he goes on, no one can serve two masters, he says. Either you'll hate the one and love the other, you'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. He says, you cannot serve both God and money. So the quality, the generosity we've been shown should result in the same quality of generosity we show others, that our priorities begin to align with the mercy we've been shown. So here's the, here's the thing. Jesus is saying, look, if a dishonest manager can see what's coming and plan accordingly for his future, how much more should those who have the gospel see what's coming and plan accordingly? He's saying, look, if a dishonest manager can receive mercy and use wealth to invest in what lasts, how much more should those who have the gospel use their resources to invest in what lasts because of the generosity shown them? Amen? And so he says, use your wealth and invest it in people. He says, be prepared for the day when it's gone because there will be a day when your wealth is gone. You'll either spend it or you'll die and it will be taken from you. So use it for what matters and use it for what's eternal. And Jesus, he's entrusting his disciples with a message and a mission, with a kingdom story to live out. But will they be trustworthy with it? See, the thing is, God wants us to be responsible for more, but he can't give us more to be responsible with until we are faithful with the tiny things we're given. We begin with the tiny reality that you and I are faced with a choice. Will I lean on mercy Will I stake my life on his generosity? Will I orient, excuse me, my story around him? How are you doing today? Are you being faithful with little? Are you managing what God's given you for his sake and his kingdom and his glory? See, finally, Jesus says, this also means knowing whom you're serving. He says you can't have split allegiance. You can't have divided loyalties. You'll serve either wealth or God. And how you know the difference is how faithful you are in stewarding what he's given you for his kingdom purposes. So as we close here, let me offer just three practical ways we can live out this new set of priorities in light of the mercy we've been shown. The steward's manager banks his entire life on the generous mercy of the master and it makes him generous He's wise to act this way. It saves him in the end, but it serves the debtors as well, and it results in the master's glory. So here are three things to do. First is this. Identify as a manager. Identify as a steward. This means simply this. Everything that's mine isn't actually mine. It's God's stuff. It's not my stuff. So the quicker we can see everything as being on loan, the greater and the quicker our generosity can be. We might say, you know what, I earned it. I've worked hard for this. Well, yeah, that's kind of true, but who gave you the ability to earn it? Who gave you the ability to work kind of hard for it? Answer would be, right? survey says, yeah, Jesus. It's right church answer most of the time. Right. So we, we might say, I earned it, but ultimately, who gave you the skills? Who gave you the health? Who gave you the capacity and the intellect and the acumen to do it? Hello. Right. The Old Testament by the way, 
prescribes a, a, a way of giving, a way of stewarding what is given to the people. The, the Old Testament had a principle of giving a tenth of their produce to God. The New Testament builds on this principle of generosity. But let me ask you this question. Is the New Testament more or less uh, morally stringent? Is the New Testament expecting more or less from the people of God? Yeah, more, right? Like you've heard it said, don't commit adultery. But I say to you, don't look at it with lust. Right? Like Jesus ramps up the expectations of what can happen in a person because he's, he anticipates that people are operating from his spirit. So we have his desires from within. And so uh, we, we might think about this like, wow, 10% feels like an awful lot. It's not a lot to give away. And you're right, this is kind of a lot. Uh, it's a ballpark figure for the big biblical norm. It's the training wheels of giving for the Christian life. It's something to work towards if you're not there, and it's something to work from if you are. But think about it like this. As a steward, as a manager, if I identify that way, then our whole perspective shifts. Instead of God saying, come on, work harder, give more, it's actually, hey, I'm going to give you 90%. I'm just going to ask you to make sure 10% goes to the kingdom. Think, think about it like that. You ever thought about it like that? You always tend to think about your stuff as 100% yours and you're going to give 10 to God. God's saying, actually, 100% is mine. I'm giving you 90 to keep. Like, that's not a bad deal. It wasn't going to be yours to begin with. And he says, well, you can keep 90%. Could you put 10 to good use for the kingdom? Not a bad deal. That means this, that if, if we aren't living for generosity, it isn't stinginess, it's robbery. Are, are you with me? Yeah, it changes your perspective on this. Because it's not fundamentally ours. Second thing, get specific about where you are and where you want to be. Um, giving is a spiritual discipline. And Dallas Willard, the great Dallas Willard, has said this uh, about spiritual disciplines. He says, they always involve three things. Vision, intention, and practice. Vision means you have a sense of what could be. What your life could be. What it could look like in Christ. It has to have intention. You actually have to mean to get your life somewhere. To go a particular way. And you have to have practice. Which means this. That there has to be action. Or else we won't ever follow through on our intention. Or achieve our vision. So get really specific about where you are. And where you want to be more generous. What would it look like for me to be more generous in this area? What practices would help me get there in six weeks, six months, and six years? And I find, too, that if I want to grow in any area, and I hope this is true for you, when you want to grow in an area, what do you have to do? You have to give somebody access to that area. You have to have it a little bit on display for somebody. We, we can't hide ourselves in areas we want to grow in. Otherwise, we don't really want to grow in them. Right? Because we'll always self-deceive ourselves into not growing. And so when we give somebody access to our life and we say, I want to grow in this area, can, you, can we have conversations about this? Can I tell you where I'm at? every other week or something like that, just so you know and, and can pray with me in this area. This is something our community group did a few months back. We looked at the theme of generosity and we all kind of said, you know what, I want to be more generous. And what we've done is we've just said, hey, let's come back to this every other month or so and let's talk about how are we doing in this area? Not as legalism, but just by just vulnerability and saying, hey, we want to grow, we want to reflect Jesus more. And this is an area that, man, I wouldn't tend to normally go, but I, I want help in that area. So I'm going to give access to my life. Third thing, last thing to do, is make generosity relational. See, when Jesus says, use your wealth to make friends, he doesn't mean give a lot so that people will like you. It's not being a middle schooler and saying, you know, like, I want to have friends, so I'll get a really good Xbox game, and then they'll all like me, so that they'll, and they'll spend time at my house. It's not like that. He means, put your resources into what lasts, into, what, into a home that cannot be taken. 
We put lots of resources into homes that can ultimately be taken and will be taken. But the only thing that lasts, friends, is people. The only thing that lasts is humans. And so you can give money until you have none left. If you're just trying to prove something or if you're just trying to solve problems or look good, it's not really putting yourself into what lasts. See, if our approach to generosity isn't relationally generous, then we're really still just miserly. See, to make our approach a generous one, to make it a relationally generous one, you have to treat people out of the same mercy you've been shown. See, one of the things I often see in the church is this. It's just, it's just a lack of forgiveness, you could say. It's just this kind of lack of forgiveness that tends to do this. It freeze frames people in their failure. So, well, 10 years ago, they treated me like this. I'm like, I'm done. I'm going to hold them freeze framed in that one place of their journey. I'm not going to believe in any future sanctification or redemption for them. Right? There's no hope of future growth. I'm not going to do any more relationship. And we do that with people. We freeze frame people or we pick each other apart and we look for all the things we don't like about them in order to keep ourselves from having to do relationship with them. And the gospel would have us do things opposite. It would have us say, you know what? I'm going to cover you with grace. And as you, co- I mean, be wise, of course, but at the end of the day, if, if we live with unforgiveness, we'll never be generous people. Because we're not relationally generous. Relationally generous people are willing to absorb some of the cost of the pain that comes with human relationships. And they're willing to cover it over with mercy and to offer new possibilities of life and relationship in Christ. And so let's be a church that's relationally generous with one another, where we don't seek for faults, but we seek for places we can apply grace. See, if we resist that urge to pick apart people uh, and, and when they've done wrong to us, if we resist that and give in to the urge to, to give out the master's mercy that's been given to us, we'll be a more generous church. We have to be relational in our generosity. Let's not be the kind of people who withhold affirmation to the ones whom the Father praises. Let's be relationally general, generous. And, and let me close with this. We, we want to be relationally generous because ultimately this is what we see in Jesus. Jesus, his, his generosity was always and is always about relationship. His generosity is about establishing relationship and sustaining relationship, and that's what we celebrate at the table. We celebrate at the table that Jesus has come, as God in the flesh, the master, to come absorb the cost of our mismanagement, to say, I will give you all of my kingdom. You don't have to earn it, and you don't have uh, to prove something to me. I know you're a mismanager. And I will absorb the cost and I will invite you into my joy and I will invite you into a new life of mercy and generosity. So let me pray for us and invite you to the table to do this, to just come and take the bread and the cup as a way of remembering and declaring to yourself where you are leaning today. Am I leaning on mercy? Eat the the bread and drink the cup as a way of leaning on mercy, of saying, it's not what I can do for God. It's ultimately what he's done for me that I lean on, that gives me my security and my identity and my rest and my peace. Maybe you're new today and you have Jesus hasn't been a part of your story. Maybe today the gospel is clear to you and you see your own mismanagement and your own need for a rescuer, for someone to manage you, to live a life of faith and trust in the one who's good and merciful and generous. Make this a moment 
of receiving his mercy and saying, I'm all in on being your person. I'm living for you and with you. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I thank you for your goodness. I thank you for your mercy. And I thank you for the story and the way it invites us to reimagine our lives in light of the mercy and the generosity of the Father. We thank you for the way that it propels us forward to live generously for others because of the way you have treated us. You are not stingy. You are not withholding. And we declare that because we celebrate the bread and the cup, the body of Christ and the blood of Christ shed for the forgiveness of sins. We celebrate it today joyfully, leaning on your mercy. In Jesus' name, amen.